Thank you, Scott, and it's good to be back with you. I'm just trying to get my act together up here. I've been trying to get my act together for 74 years and haven't done it. So, um, so let me say a few words before uh, I have you stand to read the text. Um, one of the things you don't know about me is that I uh, one time thought God was calling me into teaching, and uh, so I went to get a teacher's union card, a, a PhD, and the world was very unimpressed that I was available to teach, and uh, God never opened that door. But I have done some adjunctive teaching from time to time, and as an adjunctive teacher, I, I have a great book, and uh, you know how great books work. You um, you have a... a, a you know, names along here and columns, you know, first paper, second paper, final exam, final grade, all that kind of stuff. And and uh, I, I'm going to set this aside for a minute. I, I, I don't teach anymore. I use it now to evaluate how people listen to my sermons, so you watch out. I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. It, it's my prop for this sermon, okay? Um, this passage that I'm going to read and focus on primarily in Luke 4 is known as Jesus' temptation, uh, and it is that, but I think you can think of it primarily as his testing, his testing, his temptation was a, a testing. You're familiar with temptations, right? Uh, my mother used to, from time to time, like she would cook a cake, and uh, it would be to go to grandmother's for Christmas. And so here I would be a seven-year-old boy and she would make this cake and ice this cake and say, you can't have any of it. And I was like, well, mama, that's crazy, you know, you, you know. But the problem with the cake is, is if I get some of it, then it's obvious I got it. Cookies were a greater temptation because if you stitched one, you could argue how many there were, you know, in the beginning. And maybe she wouldn't know that one was missed. Um, so we know temptation. But we don't know temptation like this. Jesus' temptation is both like ours and unlike ours. I think fundamentally it is very much unlike ours, and you'll see that uh, as I develop the message, I hope. I assume that this is a real temptation. Uh, what do I mean by that? That Jesus was really tempted. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews says he was tempted in all things like as we are, yet without sin. And so it's a real temptation. And having said that, I want to ask you to stand and I'll read the text after I have a brief prayer for illumination. Lord our God, open our eyes to behold marvelous things in your word. And particularly today, Lord, open our eyes to see Jesus' love as he as he resisted that which was rightfully his. And use a wretchedly sinful crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what you have printed in your worship folder starts at chapter 3, verse 23. I'm actually going to start at verse 21. So you'll just listen as I read the, these two verses uh, that aren't printed there. And then I'll read uh, some of what is printed there. Um, John the Baptist, I'll give you a little intro. John the Baptist began his ministry in, in uh, the Judean wilderness and was by the river Jordan baptizing and people were going out from Jerusalem to the river Jordan to be baptized by John. And Jesus went 
and was baptized by John, and we take it up right there. Now when all, when all the people, this is verse 21, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And then in the strangest thing, Luke goes into the genealogy. And it's like, you read this passage, and some of you have probably done this, and you got to Luke, at the end of Luke 3, and you think, the genealogy right here? Come on, Luke, what are you doing? Well, I hope to get clear on that. So let me just read the first verse or two and the last verse or two of the genealogy. Some of you think, surely he's not going to read all that. You're right, okay, because you can get it. So verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years old, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Matthat. And he goes on, and then look at the very end of that in verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Luke is showing that, that Jesus is a descendant of, of Adam. He's a son of Adam and he's a son of God. That would be important. So then we get to verse 1 of chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that he's just been baptized with at the end, at the middle of, uh, of uh, chapter 3, 21 and 22, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus said to him, answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from there, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers will fade away, but this God, this word of God will never fade away. It will abide forever and forever. Amen. Please be seated. So let me set this text up this way, and for some of you, so this early part will be a nightmare, and I get that, so uh, just relax if it, if it moves you that way. Suppose you're in school. You're in high school, you're in college, you need to pass a test in order to pass a course 
or to keep your scholarship or to open the door to a further course you want to take. Suppose you've got to pass a test to accomplish your goal. And secondly, suppose that you need to make a hundred on that test to graduate or to get into the new program, okay? Some of you may have been in that situation. You got yourself so behind the eight ball, eight ball you had to pull it out on the final exam, right? Okay. For most of us, that'd be pretty challenging. But suppose, thirdly, that the test you've got to ace is a one-question test. Now, I said I've done some adjunctive teaching, but I never gave one-question test. To me, it's the height of tyranny when a professor gives a one-question test. You know what I mean? They say, look, there'll be no papers in this uh, semester. There'll be no uh, exams in this semester. You've got to read this material. I'll lecture, and you don't have a final exam, and your grade on the final exam is your grade in the course. And you freak out, right? I mean, because it's just, the tension is enormous when you get put in that situation. So you've got this one question test that you've got to ace in order to pass the course to get into the next program, whatever. Suppose, finally, you fail the test miserably. Not with a 50 or a 30, but you blank out, you can't remember a thing, you're having a bad day, and you hand in a paper with nothing but your name on it. Where are you there? Where are you then? Well, I want to suggest that you're three places, but they're all kind of the same. You're where Adam was. Remember Adam? Adam was put in the garden, and he was given a one-question test. Adam? Don't eat of that tree. You can have everything else. What did Adam do? Well, he did what I would have done. He did what you would have done. He failed the moral test with a zero, and he was expelled from the garden. Adam's morality was tested, but also I think Adam's faith was tested. Is God good? Does God really intend to bless you? I mean, I think when the devil went to Adam and said, has God really said that? God, God seems like a school sport to me. He tested not only Adam's morality, but his faith that God was good. And I think the implication is that God has a great book. Adam's name's in it, my name's in it, and friend, your name's in it. Your name's in God's great book. He's got a great book, and your name's in it. So, if you fail this one-question test where Adam was, we are also, secondly, we're where the entire human race is in Adam. We know that Adam's score was imputed or reckoned to the entire human race. So we're born with a zero in God's great book. Sometimes we try to pull up our grade, but the Bible says all our righteous deeds are just filthy rags of polluted garment in God's sight. Luther felt that acutely. When Luther... The Holy Spirit began to work in Luther's life. He realized that all he had done to please God, to gain cred with God, was nothing. That's very difficult for many people to accept. 
Most people that will tell you, well, you know, you say to somebody, do you hope to go to heaven when you, got, when you die? And they may say, I hope so. And if you told them, well, you know, God has a great book, and you said to them, what do you think your score is in God's great book? They might say, well, it's 70, that's a low pass maybe, or a, nah, not me, I'm a, I'm a 50, and somebody else would say I'm a 30. But very few people would say I'm a zero. That my score in God's great book is zero, Right? Very, very few. So you, if you fail this one question test, you're where Adam was, you're where the entire human race is in Adam, and really you're where Israel was in the wilderness. Uh, we alluded to that last week in the message. Uh, in the wilderness, after they left Egypt and they were on the Exodus, God tested them in the wilderness. God read that passage. He, he tested them to know what was in their heart. And he tested them by thirst and by hunger. He provided water and bread and meat, yes, but only after they had failed their test. If you read Hebrews 3, if you read 1 Corinthians 10, you read clearly that Israel failed its test in the wilderness. Well, I told you I was trying to get my act together. So Israel failed its test in the wilderness and God provided for them in spite of the fact that they failed their test in the wilderness. So just graphically, I can do this without dropping them on the floor. That's my score, your score, in God's favor. Okay. Come back to that again. So, Jesus is being tempted here three times. We'll get to that in a minute. But he's being tested three ways. I want to talk about the three ways first. He's being tested as the second Adam. The reason I had Scott read the passage from 1 Corinthians 15, and also you find that in, um, in Romans uh, chapter 5, that there's a first Adam who failed and a second Adam, Jesus, who succeeded. Right? I mean, Jesus clearly in this passage in Luke 4 passed the test. He did not succumb. And he's tested as the second Adam. So you've got the baptism and the genealogy that shows he's the son of Adam. And, and then he's tested as the second Adam. He's tested also as the new Israel. Last week we, we talked about how God's people were preserved by taking them down into Egypt and then bringing them out at the Exodus. And I said Jesus was taken down into Egypt and preserved from Herod and then he was brought out after the death of Herod. And Jesus here is the new Israel and he is tested and passes the test. And thirdly, he's tested as the Son of God. Now look at the text. Look at the text. This is where it's so fundamentally and profoundly different from our temptations, okay? It says to you, it says rather in verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God. And again, it says in verse 9, if you're the Son of God. Now friend, I've got news for you. You never have been tested that way and you never will be because you're not the Son of God. Not the way Jesus was the Son of God, right? That is exactly right. So, 
He's tempted as the second Adam, as the new Israel, as the Son of God. Note also how the Holy Spirit is in the midst of this. Uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon him and descends on him in bodily form in verse 22. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. What this is, is a spiritual battle between Jesus and the devil. And Jesus, as the divine warrior, it's a great theme in the scriptures, the divine warrior. What's the last picture we have of Jesus in the Bible? And in Revelation 19, where he's riding on a white stallion, and out of his mouth is coming a sharp two-edged sword. The last picture of Jesus is a divine warrior coming to gather his people and conquer his enemies, just like happened in coming out of the Exodus. God gathered his people, conquered his enemies, brought them out, and led them through the wilderness to the promised land. When Jesus resists these temptations, he will be qualified to represent those who have failed God's moral test. When he resists these temptations, he will be the Lamb of God without spot or blemish to die for the sins of the world. The stakes are very high. The stakes are very high. Now, I want to look at the three temptations and see how he resisted to be qualified. If he had sinned, he'd been disqualified, but he passed the test and was qualified to be the Savior of the world. And the essence of these temptations is this. Listen carefully. The essence of the temptations is this. Jesus, don't go to the cross. Jesus, take your glory before the cross. Forget the cross. Don't die on the cross. You're the Son of God. You have glory. You have might. You have honor. Go for it now. Don't humble yourself. The biblical picture is humiliation first, then exaltation. The temptations are all, forget the humiliation, go for the exaltation without the humiliation. You'll see that, I think, if you go through it. We've never been tested like that. Okay, here's the first temptation. And by the way, the, I think the right way to interpret these, the best way to interpret these, is to look at the way Jesus responded. That he understood the meaning, so his response helps us to see the, the meaning. So the first temptation is the temptation of bread and God's care. Um, it says he uh, was tempted for 40 days, and then in great understatement, it says, and when these days were ended, he was hungry. I guess so, right? 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. And what Jesus is trying to show them and us is there's something more important than eating. So he's the Son of God. He's in the wilderness. He's tempted in the wilderness. Where was Israel when they were tempted? In the wilderness. There's a lot of this wilderness theme in the Scriptures. Uh, Israel was in the wilderness 40 years. He's in there 40 days. He's hungry. As the Son of God, he can do what the devil suggests. The devil says, command this stone to become bread. Jesus can do that. I couldn't do that, but Jesus could do that. 
He could solve his problem. He could uh, take care of his hunger by just showing his glory by turning a stone into bread. If he has a lapse of faith, and if he decides not to walk the path that's been laid out for him, what's the essence of this temptation? Has God said that he would provide for you? Has God said that he would take care of you? The devil is saying, just trust God. Provide for yourself. Prove your sonship now, prior to the cross, by performing this miracle, and not proving your sonship by the resurrection after your death. Interestingly, Romans 1 verse 4 says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. What does is, what is, what is the resurrection show? That Yes, Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus has power. The kind of power that can be shown in turning a stone to bread. But he's going to wait to show his power after he saved the world. Good news. Really good news. Another passage that Scott read, he quotes Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3, and you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and led you let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is saying that the word of God and obedience to it are more important than eating. That my future depends on the word of God and the will of God, not food or self. Jesus said in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And if you read that passage in context, it's a funny passage because he sent the disciples into town to get some, you know, Big Mac and some fries, you know, to get some food. And the woman, uh, the Samaritan woman comes to the well and he dialogues her and reveals himself as the, as the, as the Messiah to her. And the disciples get back and they say, well, I thought, we thought he was hungry. This is the Carter translation, okay? And they get back and they're perplexed. They thought he was hungry. He's talking to this woman. And they thought, well, if he had some food to eat, he says, in so many words, guys, you don't get it. You don't get it. My, my food is to do the will of God. I live on the fact that I do the will of God. The will that he sent, that I do what he sent me to do and I accomplish his work. If he fails here, if Jesus fails here, he cannot accomplish the work. He cannot accomplish the work that God gave him to do. So the issue is, how am I to live? And the answer is, in faith. Second temptation. The temptation to rule through false worship. And the point here is there's something more important than immediate power and glory. Now, I've got to give you a little warning here. Don't get distracted by the interesting question, could the devil really do this and how? Great questions, but if, you, if I delve into those, uh, we'll get distracted from the main thrust, okay? Ask Charlie that. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll do the easy stuff and let Charlie do the hard stuff, all right? But really, the devil says, look, 
devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Whose kingdoms were these? Well, ultimately, they're Jesus' kingdom, right? Where is Jesus now? The right hand of the majesty on high. He's enthroned. Someday he's coming back. He'll be crowned in a, in a, in, in a, in a visible way. So the devil is showing Jesus what's rightfully his. He showed him all the kings of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory what has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So, all he's saying to Jesus is, Jesus, take what's rightfully yours right now. Don't go to the cross. None of this blood and death stuff. Just take what's rightfully yours. Think about it. Who is Jesus right now? Well, he was born to a poor Jewish teenage girl in a family of no great significance. In, at this point in Jesus' life, in the eyes of the world, he is a nobody in capital letters. He is a nobody. And, and he has very little and the devil shows him everything. Everything. And he's offered glory. He's offered authority. He's offered what he rightfully deserved. He offered him what would be his someday. You know, it's kind of like, you ever, you ever get a Christmas gift, you know somebody says, what do you want for Christmas? And you tell them. And so Christmas comes and there's this box wrapped up. And you pick it up and shake it and you think, well, I know what that is. But you can't have it right now. It's yours, but you can't have it right now. That's where Jesus is. All this glory, all this power, all this authority. What Satan offered Jesus is significance. He's a nobody. Jesus is told by the devil, I'll make you into somebody. You'll be somebody. You won't be a carpenter from a remote part of a remote little country in the world. You'll be somebody. You'll have all the kings of the world and all their authority and all their power. Now, significance is one of your and my legitimate needs. Everybody needs to have some significance. Adam had great significance in the garden, but when he was expelled from the garden, I think he lost his security, and I think he lost his significance. And And... Everybody's looking for significance. Everybody walking up and down the vision street, everybody you meet, meet. I don't know most of you people personally, but I know every one of you, in one way or another, craves significance. I know the only real way to get significance is being an adopted child of God and to know God and have a relationship with God. But the world is looking for significance the way the movie stars look for significance. And the sad thing is that the movie stars achieve what they achieve and still feel insignificant. Right? They feel like they're nobody. They have to press. They, they're never satisfied because significance in the eyes of the world can never satisfy a soul made in the image of God. Can't do it. There's a great quote in one of Tim Keller's books uh, of 
by the great theologian Madonna where she says, I, I never feel satisfied. I never feel significant. I always press on for more. She says, she says I don't know why I feel like this. I, I probably will always be like this. Wow, really? Jesus has offered significance. He's offered the acknowledged significance that he deserves. And all he has to do is worship the devil. <laughs> well, you know he's not going to do that, right? He's not going to do it. He's offered power and glory immediately apart from God's providence, apart from God's power, apart from God's provision. He's set, he's tempted to go for glory without Gethsemane and without Golgotha. Go for the glory now. Forget Gethsemane. Forget Golgotha. No suffering, no sacrifice, no redemption. Jesus again quotes scripture and says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. So he withstands the second temptation. Then the third temptation, the devil's been outwitted by, by uh, uh, Jesus twice. And so the third temptation is to test God's presence and God's protection. And I'll explain that in a minute. But the point here is that there's something more important than proving that God is near right now. Uh, the temptation uh, begins with scripture that's taken out of context. And I wish I had time to take you to Psalm 91 and read the text that Satan quotes uh, and show you how it's taken out of context, but you don't, you don't want that time to be taken. Uh, we'll be here too long. Uh, but what the devil is doing, he says, um, Jesus took him to Jerusalem, put him up on the pinnacle of the temple, very high. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from there, and, and God will take care of you. As one man says, God, Satan is saying to, to, to Jesus, God will protect those who are in his, so go ahead and jump. If you're God's son, Jesus, you need not worry a bit. And so he put, the devil's put Jesus in a position where God would be forced to act, forcing a flashy display of power before the cross, before the resurrection. The devil is saying, don't live by the faith that God is near, prove that God is near. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did at Massa. You shall not test God. And, and if you look um, at that in Exodus, I mean in, in Deuteronomy 6, and, and if you look back at Exodus 17 and what happened at Massa, uh, where they tested God, I want to read this passage, just a few verses from Exodus 17, because it's so significant in proving the point that I'm trying to make of what's going on in this third temptation, okay? So, all the congregations of people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. They're in the wilderness by stages, according to the commandment of God, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? 
But the people thirsted there for water, and people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did so. And the sight in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now God had said he would be with them and by faith they could have taken it that God was with them but they tested God saying, God, prove you're with us. That's exactly what's happening in Luke 4 in this third temptation. In the, the Satanist takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple and says, throw yourself down. Prove that God's here. Prove that God's here. Put God to the test. Fall out of favor with God by sinning like Israel did in Exodus 17. He walked by faith that God was in their midst. What does this tell us? What's the Lord's Supper tell us? Does it tell us, doesn't it tell us that God's in our midst? Doesn't it tell us that God cares? I was talking to somebody on my phone one Sunday afternoon that worshipped in a church that had the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And this person was saying, I just don't know if God cares. I just don't know if God's with us. And I said, did you take the Lord's Supper this morning? Yes. What did that supper say to you? God bled out his only boy for you and you're wondering if he cares? Oh. <laughs> oh. God bled out his only boy. i got two boys, but I wouldn't sacrifice either one of them for you. Sorry. Right? And you wouldn't either if you have a son or a dog. A few lessons and reminders and I'll move toward the conclusion. Even those full of the Holy Spirit and even those right in the midst the will of God for their lives can be greatly tempted. It happened to Jesus. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit when he was baptized. It's the Spirit that guides him out into the wilderness. Don't think if God was with me, it wouldn't be so hard. Life in a fallen world is hard. It just is. Sometimes the Holy Spirit leads us into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for his glory, for our joy, and for what Peter calls in 1 Peter 1 verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith. The tested genuineness of your faith. That's what he's doing with Jesus in chapter 4. So, from the first temptation, remember that real life does not come primarily from food and drink and clothing and possessions, but from submission to and obedience to the will of God. From the second temptation, remember that significance that lasts and, and, and significance that, that fills the heart does not come from serving Satan and seeking significance by power and glory to the world. It comes from faith in Jesus and adoption as God's child. The path in the scriptures for Jesus was humiliation, then exaltation. It will be that 
for us as well. And from the third temptation, we should not artificially put ourselves in positions that force God to act to save or deliver us. We should trust Him to be there for us. Now, one last thing, take just a bit to develop this. Some of you noticed that in verse 13, the last verse that was read, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The picture is that there was this raft of temptations, this season of temptations, and then the departure of the devil, and then at some point the devil came back at an opportune time. Huh. Now I find that, that temptation from the devil kind of does come periodically. Sometimes you feel like you're in a, a downpour of satanic temptation and other times not so much. Um, but, but Jesus here passes the test. He passes the test. Uh, victory is assured because he's been tested as the second Adam and has resisted the temptation. The German generals said in regard to the Normandy landing uh, D that we call D-Day, they said, the German general said, if, if we allow them to establish a beachhead, we will lose the war. And they were right. And this is the beachhead. Jesus has got the beachhead now. He, he's, 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 he's set up to be the sinless son who sacrificed for the sins of the world because he's resisted this temptation. But when would Jesus return? He departed from him until an opportune time. I want to mention two opportune times. One of them Scott read about. Peter's confession in Matthew 16. Uh, some people, who do people say that I am? Some say this, some say this, some say this. Who do you say that I am? Peter said, his confession, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. But Peter's confession is followed by Peter's confusion. Because if you read on in that passage like Scott did, Peter says, when Jesus begins to say that he's going to suffer and die and on the third day be raised, Peter pulls him aside and says, Never, Lord! Never! I'll take up the sword against the Romans. Never, Lord, will you die. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying the same thing that Satan said. Jesus, don't go to the cross. Jesus, don't go to the cross. When, when Jesus was in Gethsemane and he and he they came to arrest him, and Peter took a sword and he tried to decapitate Malchus, the high priest servant. And Malchus turned his head and the sword got his ear cut off. And Jesus took the ear and he put it back on. And then he turned to Peter and he said, don't you think I can call 10,000 angels and stop all this mess? 
And the answer was, yeah, he could, right? He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have not gone to the cross. What was one of the opportune times that Satan came back to tempt? It's, it's through Peter. When Peter says, Lord, don't go to the cross. Jesus is saying in so many words, I've got to go to the cross. That's why I came. Your salvation depends on my going to the cross. If I take my glory before the cross, you're damned. When other time, I read this passage for you. It's, it's one of the great passages. When you, when you read it in this context. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. And they put this sign up. This is Jesus, you know, the king of the Jews. Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Does that sound like Luke 4? If you're the Son of God, show your glory now. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Friends, you better be glad I wasn't on the cross. I would have come down. I would have called fire out of heaven and I would have incinerated the vermin. The problem is, none of us would have been saved. Can you imagine? This is the Son of God. He's on the cross. He doesn't have any clothes on. The shame, the horror... He's got all the power. He could have come off the cross. He could have taken His glory then if He could have taken His glory in Luke 4. His love. Listen, friend, your sin didn't keep Him on the cross. The nails didn't keep Him on the cross. His love for His covenant people what kept Him on the cross. This is serious stuff. There's moral testing throughout the Bible. Adam was tested. Israel was tested. Jesus was tested. You and I are tested. I ain't done so well. How about you? I fail God's test every day. But the good news is just this. Jesus passed God's moral test for himself and for us. He made a perfect score. He took our test for us. And so... God's great book. When you put your faith in Jesus, God goes, Jesus goes in God's great book and does that. Right? Right by your name if you put your faith in Jesus. This is your score in God's great book. Pretty good score, don't you think? You've aced the test. Well, no, I didn't ace it. He aced it. Yeah, but he credits it to your account, friend. He credits it to your account. And we play these silly games about, well, yeah, Jesus gets me into heaven, but God's going to really love me. I've got to perform. I, what's your score? Well, i got to pull my grade up. Oh, don't give me that. You think you can pull up what Jesus did? You think you can do better than Jesus? How arrogant can you be, friend? You say, that's a strong word. I love to use that word. It's arrogant to think I can do better than Jesus. It's pure, unadulterated arrogance. 
Jesus scores all you will ever need, and it's all that God will accept. Our living for him are just a response to what he's done for us, and he did for us what he did on the cross and was acceptable to his Father because he passed this test in Luke 4, because he passed that test when, in Matthew 16 when Peter was so confused, when he passed that test on the cross, and they said, if you're the Son of God, come down. The words are not recorded, but he said, I won't do it. I love him too much. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us that we uh, doubt your love. We forget the gospel. We don't work it through completely. Lord, I pray that you'll apply this afresh and anew to my heart and the heart of every believer here. And Lord, if there's anybody here that's not a believer, I pray that by faith they would believe in you. As we read earlier, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, it's the only time where it sounds too good to be true, but it is. Help us to believe it, grasp it, revel in it. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.